good afternoon, everybody. Thank you for coming. Uh, I am Peter Russo. I'm the Director of Congressional Affairs at the Cato Institute. Uh, and I'm glad to have everybody here. Our uh, program today is entitled Proven Strategies to Restrain Spending, an International Perspective. And I'm going to introduce our host and moderator, uh, Dan Mitchell. Dan is a senior fellow at Cato who specializes in fiscal policy, particularly tax reform, international tax competition, and the economic burden of government spending. Prior to joining Cato, he was a senior fellow at the Heritage Foundation and an economist for Senator Bob Packwood and the Senate Finance Committee. He's been published widely in nearly every newspaper of significance, and he's a frequent guest on the major networks and public affair programs as an internationally known expert on these issues. He earned his PhD in economics from George Mason University. So let's please welcome Dan Mitchell. Thank you, Peter. Um, my job as moderator is basically to set the stage for what's going to be discussed today, uh, give brief introductions of our speakers, uh, and then uh, hopefully keep everything rolling at a brisk pace so we have some time for Q&A. What I want to start with is pointing out that there have been a handful of countries over time that have had very successful multi-year periods of spending restraint. Uh, these are all examples of countries and the periods when they restrained spending. We see how spending grew at less than 2% a year. We see what happened to the burden of government spending as a share of GDP. And we see that when you control spending, you also reduce red ink. Deficits come down or disappear. Government debt falls as a share of GDP. The problem is, how do you sustain this? How do you make sure that a country, once it gets in trouble, can begin to, to put their fiscal policy in a good position and keep it? Because you'll notice one of the first countries on this list is Ireland. But they went in the wrong direction uh, starting about five years ago. So all the gains that they achieved disappeared. Uh, so in other words, it's not just important to have a, a government that decides to restrain spending and to shrink the burden of government relative to the, to the private sector. How do you make sure that it doesn't disappear after the next election? How do you make sure that it's sustainable for the long run, which is especially important with aging populations and other demographic changes in our society? By the way, we've even had some success in the United States. Uh, this shows that from 2009 to 2014, we actually had a spending freeze in Washington. Federal government spending in 2014 was no bigger than it was in 2009. And as a result of that, on the federal level, we actually had the biggest five-year drop in the burden of government spending as a share of GDP uh, in our, ever since World War II. Uh, and that happened. You know, so in other words, all the, all the flurry and all the excitement about these fights over debt limits and sequesters and government shutdowns, it actually paid off. We had a five-year freeze in government spending. That's the good news. The bad news is there's no reason to expect that to be sustained. As a matter of fact, the projections are for government to grow 4% on the federal level this year. And of course, with our aging population and with, with poorly designed entitlement programs, uh, we expect that the budget numbers will get worse unless we figure out some sort of budget process reform uh, to address this future challenge. And that's the whole purpose of this panel today. We brought together three excellent speakers who are going to talk about not only international evidence for what works in terms of good fiscal policy, but we even have one bit of domestic evidence looking at the, the TABOR, the Taxpayer Bill of Rights in Colorado. So it's international, the US, and 
Hong Kong, and Switzerland. Our three speakers, we're going to start with uh, Daniel Freihofer, who's the Minister Counselor, Head of Economic and Financial Affairs at the Swiss Embassy. Then we'll hear from Clement Leong, Hong Kong's Commissioner to the United States. And then we're going to close out our cleanup hitter. You're only batting third, but you're still the cleanup hitter. Uh, is Jonathan Williams, who's the Vice President for the Center for State Fiscal Reform at the American Legislative Exchange Council. So with no further ado, let me call Daniel up to the uh, podium, and we'll hear his presentation. Hi. Hi, everyone. And uh, I would like to first thank to you, Dan, for inviting me and uh, the Cato Institute for organizing this gathering uh, on a very relevant topic. I'm glad to briefly explain the uh, Swiss concept of uh, debt break and then also to uh, uh, briefly touch upon the experiences uh, we made with uh, this uh, concept, which uh, was introduced back in 2001 based on a popular uh, a vote on an initiative. The Swiss people adopted this concept with a large majority of 85%, uh, which uh, requires that government spending, uh, uh, government spending to grow no faster than a, a trend line uh, revenue. That's the, the, basic, the basic concept, and it's uh, been laid down since then in the Constitution in Article 126 of the Federal Constitution. The debt break is designed to avert structural deficits in federal government finances and also to prevent uh, soaring debts uh, levels how, the, the way we had it in the 90s. Uh, and uh, you will see later on that this uh, concept has to be proven, has, to, has, has, has had its, uh, its success and this objective was, uh, has been largely achieved so far. The debt break ensures a counter-cyclical fiscal policy by permitting uh, limited cyclical deficits during downturn phases of the economic cycle, so on a, on a multi-year uh, period, and requiring surpluses when the economy is booming. That's the, the basic uh, concept. The debt break therefore addresses two classical objectives of fiscal policies. Policy. It ensures the sustainability of public finances and uh, its smoothest, smoothest economic cycle and growth fluctuations. You see now on this slide the basic concept uh, uh, as it stands. The cornerstone of the debt break consists of this simple expenditure rule. Expenditure may not exceed receipts over an economic cycle. That's the basic principle. If you have understood this, you understand the, the basic uh, uh, concept. It's, it's almost like, uh, like uh, in a household spending, in a pragmatic approach, you should no, never spend more than you have in your pocket, right? Uh, in a conservative, rather conservative approach, but in the long term, uh, that, uh, that is uh, certainly uh, uh, the, uh, a responsible thing to do. The debt break limits spending growth to average revenue increases over a multi-year period. Uh, the maximum amount for the expenditure ceiling is linked to the amount of receipts after adjustment using a factor that takes capacity utilization or the economic environment into 
account. It's called the cyclical factor. When the economy is booming, the expenditure ceiling is lower than receipts, and the confederation generates a surplus. You see this here. And in the opposite scenar scenario, uh, the formula tolerates a deficit in times of recession. <coughs> that means expenditure may then exceed rece receipts. As a result, balanced finances are achieved over the entire economic cycle. Uh, briefly explained the, 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 the main elements of the debt break. If the actual expenditure at the end of the year exceeds the recalculated expenditure ceiling, the excess is char charged to a compensation account. By the way, I won't go into technical details, first of all, because I personally don't understand them. And secondly, <laughs> if, 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 if you are really interested in going more into details, we are very happy to uh, give you more uh, uh, information and material uh, upon request. Uh, under the extended debt break rule, which entered into force uh, in first, on 1st of January 2010, Deficits in the extraordinary budget must be offset in the medium term via the ordinary budget. Then we have the amortization account, which records extraordinary receipts and expenditure and acts kind of a memory of the extended debt break. If extraordinary expenditure exceeds extraordinary receipts, the shortfall must be offset in the following six fiscal years via surpluses in the ordinary budget. Now, the track, what is the track record since, the, uh, since this law came into force uh, back in uh, 2003? As you can see on this slide, uh, the review of the 10 years uh, of fiscal policy management with the debt break shows that the desired object objectives have been largely achieved. The balancing of the budget was achieved at the beginning of, of last decade, and further rise of debts has been uh, prevented. The federal budget has not exhibited a structural deficit since 2006. Thanks to the debt break, fiscal policy is now also better aligned with the economic cycle. Uh, Federal finances, as you can see on this slide too, are in significantly better state today than 10 years ago when the debt break was first introduced. Uh, since peaking actually in 2005 at uh, 130 billion uh, Swiss francs, the gross debt of the Swiss Confederation has declined by 18 billion. Uh, the debt ratio, which you can see on this slide too, is now at 19%. It's a ratio between debts uh, uh, and the, uh, and the G GDP. And it has, uh, whereas it has been up to 36% when the debt break, debt bre uh, break uh, took, took effect, effect. So uh, uh, a high, uh, sharp decline. Uh, in nominal, nominal terms, the debt reduction has also, uh, as the, debt, the debt has also been uh, tremendously reduced. And uh, 
it has also, of course, uh, uh, as a result, lowered interest expenditure by some 700 million Swiss francs, which is quite uh, significant. What are the conclusions of, uh, of, uh, uh, of this uh, concept? Uh, it's certainly a top-down approach. You mentioned it uh, then also. Uh, it gives, uh, uh, it puts certain limits to uh, a politicians' manoeuvre, and uh, it really encourages politicians to uh, good fiscal policy, and uh, because basically they are not able to boost spending when the economy is doing well, which is uh, uh, usually, usually the case through these expenditure uh, caps. The debt break has proved to be an efficient fiscal rule for managing the budget in the short and medium term. But of course, there are also limitations to it. Uh, it cannot solve long-term structural problems, such as the aging of the population and the implication of this for uh, social security funds, for example. Uh, challenges of this kind need to be tackled by means of, of reforms uh, in, in, in the political areas concerned. Uh, we, believe, although we believe, however, that uh, further reducing uh, the debt ratio will provide future generation with the best possible starting point for tackling the problems of the future. And uh, that's why the, this concept has a, a tremendous support in the Swiss population. And uh, it is also in line with the general, generally quite pragmatic and conservative approach of, of uh, Swiss policy in, in, the, in the fiscal area. And uh, from our point, point of view, there are other countries which, has, which, which uh, took the Swiss model as, as inspiration. Uh, we can only recommend it, and, uh, and uh, we are glad to share our experiences in case of interest. And as I said, if you have a further question uh, in, in, on the technical level, we will be most happy to, to give you uh, information and, and, uh, and uh, material if you're interested in studying this further. Why not for the US? in the future. Thank you very much. Any, any, anyone, right? <clears throat> um, first of all, thank you to Dan and Cato for inviting me to speak and share the experience of Hong Kong in our management of uh, public finance. Uh, first of all, quick snapshot of uh, what we are, where we are. I used uh, 1997 as a kind of benchmark uh, because we, it is a year when we return to Chinese sovereignty as a special administrative region, uh, have a separate uh, economic, taxation, political, uh, and legal system. Uh, in about the 17 years since we revert to Chinese sovereignty, we run budget surpluses for 12 years and five years of deficits. Um, for this financial year, our spending is about 57 billion. And to give you a perspective, um, uh, New York City has a budget spending of 80 billion, of about 8, 8 million people. Mm. So, about, so the spending is about roughly the same scale. They have more population. So we have about 15% less per, on a per capita basis. Uh, Hong Kong has no debt. 
And we have something what we call the fiscal reserves, which many economies don't have. That is a piggy bank. Uh, that where we put our reserves um, that is accumulated on a, on, a, on a basis, which is 110 billion US dollars, uh, which is equivalent to 37% uh, GDP and 23 months of government expenditure, meaning that we could survive two years without a cent of income. Um, top salaries tax uh, payers pay 15% max. It's one five, not five zero, right? <laughs> <laughs> and the effective tax rate is 8%. So there are people who earn less, who pay less as a step rate, but it's capped at 15%. Corporates pay a flat tax of 16.5 on profits, all right? And, um, um, and that is income derived and sourced within Hong Kong. So there's no global, global taxation. Uh, we have no GST, no, no um, uh, VAT, no withholding or tax on interest, dividend, inheritance, and whatnot. Revenue profile. Um, Profits and salaries are the main areas. Uh, we have something called stamp duty, which is charge on property and, and stock transactions. Uh, has something we call investment income. We have invested our fiscal reserve and that account for about 10% of our income. Sizable income from land revenue, uh, land premium, because all land belongs to government. And we, every year we auction land for the right to use, not, not to own. Um, and that, that is a sizable income. Expenditure profile is not very different from um, any other countries. Uh, so the big spenders will be education, social welfare, and healthcare. This year, we have a big blip, blip in uh, infrastructure spending because uh, we will be reaching uh, quite um, a spending peak for some of the mega uh, infrastructure program, like a big bridge uh, that we built across to Macau, which is 18 miles. And we will be digging through Hong Kong with a kind of tunnel. Uh, a high-speed rail link that connect up with um, um, the mainland um, China's uh, high-speed rail network, which is all tunnel. Um, we have very strong fiscal discipline, which is basically four factors, historical, constitutional, legal, and policy. Uh, historically, uh, we've been under British administration for 155 years as a, as a colony, and the Brits are very keen to make sure that it won't be a burden to the crown. So they have to make sure that Hong Kong is self-sufficient so that we don't have to hand our hand and, uh, to our sovereign to, to ask for money. Um, so we have a, a, a big succession of uh, financial secretaries who's been very uh, strict, uh, very faithful disciple of Adam Smith, small government uh, and big market. Uh, to, to the extent that one financial secretary actually refused to collect statistics on things because he said that if you start collecting statistics, there is a kind of incentive for you to interfere with the market. Um, so he refused to collect uh, in, uh, statistics about things like uh, unemployment and things like that. Um, and of course, um, after we have reverted to Chinese sovereignty, um, we are under a constitutional arrangement whereby Hong Kong will run its own affairs. Uh, Hong Kong people administering Hong Kong, one country, two systems. And um, uh, we have in our constitution a requirement to keep expenditure within revenues and to run budget uh, balance prevent deficits and budget commensurate with the growth of our GDP. And we are required by our constitution to be a low tax policy uh, uh, regime. And of course, like many other countries, the legislature will approve the budget and spending. And um, there's one very clever um, provision uh, that, that we call um, um, Article 74, uh, which provides that bills which do not relate to public expenditure uh, may be introduced by the legislature. 
uh, we interpret to mean that uh, the legislature, that is Congress in this country, cannot introduce bill bills with the charging effect unless uh, you have the approval of the uh, executive branch. So you could imagine how politicians will be resisting the temptations to um, propose measure that will um, in increase expenditure. So um, the legislature in Hong Kong cannot propose bills uh, uh, that will increase expenditure unless the, uh, the executive branch agrees. We have what we call uh, a public finance ordinance, which basically provides a legal framework for management of public finance. And all, all revenues will belong to the center. That is a central pocket. So departments who collect revenue cannot spend it without authorization. And uh, we have an um, 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 annual appropriation bill, which prescribes the spending ceiling as well as the headcount ceiling. That is, you just, you just not, not just the amount of money that you can spend, but the number of people and agency can hire. And all works projects, bricks and mortars, uh, over four million US dollars will require separate authorization uh, by the legislature. And any change to the job description of what we call director officers, who are policy officers, will have to get separate uh, authorizations as well. Um, Policy-wise, resource allocation is very highly centrally uh, controlled uh, and highly centralized and highly competitive. Every year, we will identify a pool of money, what we call new money. Uh, basically, an agency will be given their baseline, and this part of money will, will be available for bidding by different agencies. And they will have to pull up proposals um, to the center uh, for allocation. Um, and, um, and in the process, we are very strict, and I can even describe it as very hostile towards spending, which is recurrent in late nature, we meaning that it's year after year. So we are very hostile to suggestion of new hire of civil servants and spending that is recurrent in nature. And we are particularly hostile to things like what we call entitlement programs here. They are all, the only entitlement program in Hong Kong is the civil service pension that, that I enjoy. <laughs> and um, other than that, um, things like social welfare, housing, medical services, they're not, they're, none of them are backed up by legislation. They're all like spending program, which is subject to authorization year after year. And of course, for civil service pension, we have dropped that in the year 2000. So uh, from, from that year on, all new hire will, will only be entitled to a Providence Fund scheme, which is a defined contribution scheme, not a defined benefits scheme. So we are plugging that loophole as well. And uh, we are also preferring uh, expenditure rather than revenue incentives. What I mean is that um, um, here or in many Western countries, when um, government wants to, for example, encourage research and development. They will have all these fancy deduction schemes, like for example, you can have double or triple deduction for spending on R&D. Uh, we are very hostile to it because we think that it is very non-transparent and you cannot really account for that kind of re what we call revenue spending, which is an oxymoron, right? Uh, this kind of revenue spending uh, on policy area. So we, we prefer to have expenditure schemes for example, if you think that R&D is worthy of support, uh, we should not have these fancy deduction schemes, but we would prefer a grant to a certain area, which is expenditure. And the legislature can see it, the public can see it, and you could really monitor the trend. So we are very hostile, and we really prefer uh, expenditure schemes rather than uh, revenue schemes. 
And uh, we also have uh, periodic exercises to do what we call attack the baseline. So I was saying that we give allocation uh, basically every year to give uh, agency their baseline. But once in a while, we will do exercises, what we call attacking the baseline, where we have to crawl, crawl back money from the baseline for allocation for new services. So it keeps uh, agencies and government departments on our toes, and we'll be, even though with a very healthy fiscal situation we are enjoying, uh, I will be facing uh, what we call a zero one one uh, kind of clawback in the next three years. This will be zero percent for this year. I'll have to claw back one percent to the center for them to allocate, and the year after another one percent. And uh, we have this in also a very informal uh, spending guideline. It's not prescribed in legislature, not prescribed in our constitution, uh, but it's followed by successive uh, governments. Uh, we try not to exceed 20% of our GDP in terms of our spending. And we try to maintain adequate uh, reserve. It is very vague, I, I know. Um, it, different financial secretary has different interpretation of what is adequate. Um, and it's also quite, sometimes quite practical because, uh, as I said, we have five years of deficits, uh, which is coincide with the kind of downturn in the Asian financial crisis. Um, and uh, we have to pare down our fiscal reserve to something like 12 months of government expenditure. And at the time, the financial secretary, oh, our meaning of adequate reserve is 12, 12 months. <laughs> and then, um, and then it, it's changed. But now this, this financial secretary said uh, it's adequate re reserves. But I think it's always been very conservative. Basically, uh, our philosophy is that we, we spend within our means. Uh, we don't try to afford programs that we cannot afford, and we do, do not want to give an undue burden to our next generation. Um, challenges, I think, is like many other political systems. Uh, we have facing constant pressure from the legislature, from politicians, from the public to tax more and to spend more. So when they're talking about um, 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 spending, um, 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 uh, they've all, all, all been trying to, to learn uh, from experience in the West about um, providing for a universal retirement protection scheme, which is funded by the state. Uh, but of course, we have to ask question whether it is sustainable and where the money will come from. Um, and we're also facing a, a situation uh, like many places uh, in developed countries, uh, an aging population. Now, uh, every elderly person, uh, 65 and above, is supported by five working population. Uh, in the year 2040, uh, one elderly person will be only supported by two working population, meaning um, that we will be facing more spending on social welfare, medical services, while on the other hand, our revenue base would shrink. Um, so we'll have to tackle that as well. Our, our tax base is very, is very narrow uh, because, it's, as you can see, um, 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 the tax rate is really, really low. And, um, um, and actually, 60% of salaries tax come from the top 5% earners. And 80% uh, of the profit taxes come from 5% of the companies. So you can imagine that um, um, in a situation where we have a, an economic downturn, um, the, the revenue base will shrink uh, very rapidly. Uh, and it's very very volatile and um, uh, cyclical. Um, so uh, what we are embarking on something that uh, our local population thinks that we are crazy. Uh, because you, we, as you can imagine, you have $110 billion of reserve equal to 23 months of government expenditure. And we are sounding the alarm because of the aging population issue. Uh, we are saying that uh, we, we will probably have a problem sort of 10, 15 years down the road. 
So we are now thinking about a longer-term strategy of um, uh, maintaining fiscal sustainability, which will involve containing uh, expenditure growth, uh, safeguarding the tax base, um, save more for the future, as well as managing our assets more cleverly. Um, these are topics that are being floated, and we have not yet been able to find uh, 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 to, 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 to announce specific measures. But we hope to be able to do so in the next six months or so. Uh, we expect that there will be quite a bit of discussions because I think um, there is, as I mentioned, uh, quite a bit of pressure for us to to spend more. Uh, but on the other hand, I think uh, from the fiscal sustainability point of view. Uh, of course, we have to comply with the Constitution. So far, nobody has sued us for, for violating that fiscal uh, 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 balance provision while we are in the deficit. But I think we will be have the keenly aware that we have a constitutional uh, obligation uh, to run um, a, a balanced budget, and as well as to ensure that uh, what we provide for uh, will be fiscally sustainable in the future. Right. Thank you. Well, that's some fascinating information coming out of Hong Kong. In fact, I would say it may be dangerous information. If the states actually followed your fiscal sustainability rules, I'd be out of a job. Uh, so I'm Jonathan Williams, Vice President of the Center for State Fiscal Reform at the American Legislative Exchange Council. I run all of our tax, budget, pension reform uh, programs. And it's an uh, honor to be with you today. Uh, thank you to Dan, Cato Institute, for your leadership on taxing expenditure limitations uh, across the world, uh, also in Colorado specifically, when we are fighting those battles with the Colorado Taxpayer Bill of Rights, which I'm going to talk about. Um, how many here are familiar with Tabor, uh, the Taxpayer Bill of Rights in Colorado? So a good deal of you are, and that's good. We're going to talk about uh, the story of Tabor going over the last uh, 20 years or so. Um, so from one of my favorite presidents here, the rationale why Tabor is necessary, obviously government doesn't reduce spending in itself. Um, in fact, uh, out, uh, maybe my favorite living economist, uh, outside of Dan Mitchell, of course, uh, is Thomas Sowell out at the Hoover Institution. I think he, he probably said it more succinctly than President Reagan, and that is the first rule of economics is you have such a thing as a scarcity of resources, while the first rule of politics is to ignore the first rule of economics. Uh, and of course, that's how we get into the situation that we're in in many times across uh, the 50 states. Uh, and we study at ALEC uh, the 50, as we say, laboratories of democracy, what's going on across the 50 states. And we find that state fiscal rules are really all over the map as well. But I'm going to be talking about the gold standard, I think, of state fiscal restraint, which is Colorado's Taxpayer Bill of Rights. Now, um, correctly noted by most is that uh, 49 out of the 50 states have either a constitutional or a statutory balanced budget amendment. But as we know from the tales of Illinois and California, uh, that doesn't do a lot to help in many cases. Uh, many times those rules are routinely waived. And so when we talk about institutional spending control like we are today, um, and those familiar with the public choice theory of economics from George Mason, how many George Mason grads do we hear out of curiosity? We have a few. I know Dan is. Uh, and so we, we believe that there needs to be sustainable rules that will um, really go throughout the political cycles to protect taxpayers. And uh, Colorado's is the gold standard when it comes to protecting taxpayers. I think a couple of the keys that come out of Colorado or to any good tax and expenditure limitation is, first of all, the rules need to be constitutional versus statutory. 
uh, time in and time out across the states, we've seen statutory spending rules and balanced budget rules routinely waived by the whims of the day for more spending or higher taxing authority. Uh, secondly, when you create a metric by which to measure the growth of government, it needs to be something that's realistic that will protect taxpayers, such as population and inflation, which is what Colorado used with the Taxpayer Bill of Rights. Many states have tax and expenditure limitations that rely on things such as personal income growth, which personal income growth grows so quickly, especially during the economic expansionary periods, that we find it's virtually no limit whatsoever on the growth of government in those states. Um, so, getting to Colorado, Taxpayer Bill of Rights was enacted as a constitutional initiative back in 1992. Um, since then, uh, Colorado has been in effect, and there's been a few wrinkles to the story that we'll get to in a little while. Um, however, it was voter approved by Colorado voters in 1992, and as you can see here, the formula uh, for Tabor up on the screen, which was to basically take previous year's spending, uh, add inflation and population growth, and then add any voter approved tax increases to that formula to get to your next limit of spending as their legislators are considering the next budget uh, in Denver. Um, and it's a constitutional limit, as I mentioned, on revenue collection, state spending, and legislative taxing authority. So not only controlled uh, the growth of the budget and uh, through revenue limits, but it also put a limit on the way that legislators can uh, raise taxes in Colorado. And as we're going to talk about in a, in a couple of slides, it's been one of the most effective ways at not just reducing the growth of government, but to stop tax increases in Colorado. And so what would happen is the legislature would have to pass the tax increase as a majority vote, as any state would, but then the tax increase would go to the voters for their approval. Uh, and as we'll say here in a second, Colorado voters have been pretty stingy in terms of the kind of taxes that they've approved since Tabor was enacted in 1992 because their view, as the view as, uh, of the presenters before me, was that government ought to live within its means and not ask for more from taxpayers, especially during tough economic times. Um, and Tabor applied to uh, both uh, state and local levels of government, and that's an important piece as well. Many times they wanted to, uh, well, in the case of Colorado, they wanted to make sure that the state government did not put unfunded mandates on local levels of government. As of course, states always are complaining that you all here in Washington are putting unfunded mandates on the states. Uh, both that happens, of course, at the local level, and Colorado wanted to make sure that wasn't that cost shifting going from state to local levels of government. Uh, and then if the uh, revenues came in above what we call the Tabor limit, which is what we just talked about with that formula, the excess revenue had to be uh, refunded to taxpayers. And over the course of these 20-some uh, years that Tabor's been in existence, uh, there have been 21 different statutory mechanisms on how that refund would happen. Currently, it's a sales tax rebate uh, plus EITC expansion plus uh, personal income tax rate reductions. That's the current hierarchy of the rebate effect. But we've seen many others over the period of, of Tabor in Colorado. Um, and then, uh, as I mentioned, it required a vote of the people to raise taxes or to spend more than the Tabor limit. So people were, the, uh, the citizens of Colorado were intimately involved in the budget uh, decision making in Colorado. Um, there was a, we call it the Tabor timeout, uh, referendum C, for those of you from Colorado uh, familiar with that. Uh, Colorado had experienced a, a pretty difficult set of circumstances coming out of the 9-11 uh, recession here. Uh, they also had extreme um, wildfires ravage the state at that period of time. Also, there was an education funding amendment put in, Amendment 23, back in 2000 that required K-12 education spending to grow regardless of what was happening to the overall size of the budget. So at that point, there was 
there's a referendum put on the ballot in 2005 to suspend Tabor for five years. That passed narrowly, but now Tabor is back into existence uh, as of fiscal year 2010. Now, there have been many other efforts to weaken or dismantle the Taxpayer Bill of Rights since then, uh, or I should say throughout the history of the Taxpayer Bill of Rights. Most of these efforts have gone down in flames, as you can see, uh, the, the vote um, and all those statewide initiatives. Some were as little as to spend an additional $50 million on a project. Some were much larger than that, uh, with $200 million uh, requested. But the, the message of this is, time in and time out, those that believe in uh, higher government spending and higher taxes have been rebuffed by Colorado taxpayers, with the sole exception of uh, referendum C that I just discussed. Here's, some here's the important thing. I think the lasting legacy of Tabor uh, over these 20-some years is, in the 23 years that Tabor's been in existence, Colorado taxpayers have not seen one broad-based tax increase. Not one in the 23 years of Tabor. There was a narrow excise tax increase on cigarettes and alcohol uh, back about a decade ago, but that was the only statewide approved tax increase uh, that Colorado voters approved in the history of Tabor. So it's been an incredible protection of taxpayers. The most recent attempt to raise taxes and go up against the Tabor uh, voter prohibition on tax increases was defeated 66 to 34 percent, despite the proponents of higher taxes spending more than uh, 10.4 million dollars. The opponents of the tax increase spent a grand total of 36,000 dollars. Something like uh, the the proponents of tax increases outspent the opponents by something like 289 times, yet it went down with 66% of the vote. Clearly, Colorado taxpayers did not want a tax increase. They wanted the Tabor limits to stay in place. Um, also, I mean, just generally, uh, Tabor has kept Colorado's tax climate competitive. Uh, we saw that not only did Colorado not raise taxes, between 97 and 2002, Colorado reduced taxes more than any other state in the nation. Uh, they also, um, as uh, recently as just a month ago, the, the most recent estimates show that Colorado may see another Tabor refund for the first time in a decade because of partly uh, legalized marijuana and the increased uh, revenue coming in there, but generally economic growth has uh, brought a new Tabor refund as of tax year 2015. And here's where Colorado stacks up personally uh, in personal income tax, corporate income tax, both some of the lowest in the country. They're both flat rate taxes as well, which is obviously very important. Um, Colorado's um, personal income tax was reduced to this level because of Tabor and the amount of uh, budget restriction put in place and taxpayer savings allowed. You can see property tax and sales tax burdens are about average, so the government isn't making it up through those areas of taxes relative to the income tax. The remaining tax burden, that's all taxes outside the three big categories of income, property, and sales, one of the lowest in the country, and the state also avoids a death tax. Um, and a couple of other um, benefits that we didn't cover there in terms of other than keeping taxes low and protecting uh, spending growth was it certainly involves taxpayers in the budgeting process. So, so many times the average taxpayer feels removed from state budgeting processes. They, they see the argument over whether the conservative budget should be to grow government by 4% versus the 10% growth proposal. Uh, they, they don't know what's happening a lot of times in state government and state budgeting. This through Tabor allows taxpayers to be intimately involved in the process. But finally, I think it's awfully important to note that Tabor and, and effective tax and expenditure limitations like it um, help smooth out the boom and bust cycle that happens in state government. You know, we all have seen it in, in California. When times are good, 
Their progressive income tax, capital gains tax, dividend taxes are booming. Revenues are coming in. They're spending money like drunken sailors many times in California and many other states. When times are bad, if you remember after the 2008 downturn, California was issuing IOUs basically to state vendors because they didn't have a cash flow to pay them. If you were a California taxpayer and you were owed a refund in, that, in those tax years right after the 2008 recession, you had to wait maybe six months to get that refund from state government. That's the boom and bust cycle. If you don't have meaningful fiscal rules that limit the growth of government through constitutional measures, through things reasonable like population inflation growth, you're going to end up more like California. I think we can all agree states across the country want to avoid ending up more like California. So thank you very much for the time. It's been a pleasure. Okay, we have a time uh, about uh, 10, 12 minutes for Q&A. Uh, I'll simply note that one theme uh, throughout these presentations, and this also can be seen in some of the International Monetary Fund reports uh, that praise expenditure caps, the challenge for many jurisdictions is when the economy is doing okay and revenues are flowing into government, in many cases, governments can't resist spending that money. That's the boom and bust cycle. Uh, that Jonathan was talking about. Uh, and that's exactly what things like the Swiss debt break deal with. It means that you can't spend the extra revenues that are coming in. You have to put them aside, sort of like into the uh, reserve fund that you have in Hong Kong. Uh, so I think that the, the, the theme is very important. How do you control government in the good times? When there's a recession, they're sort of forced to try to not spend as much money. But in the good times, it's when they get in trouble, because then they're putting government on this higher baseline. Uh, but with that one editorial comment, let's open up for q and I'm Robert O'Quinn. I am the staff director for the Office of Vice Chairman of the Joint Economic Committee, Representative Kevin Brady of Texas who has authored a um, expenditure limit, and that I would be curious in terms of the reaction of the panel to our way. Um, Mr. Williams, we agree with you very much in terms of, and Dr. Mitchell, in terms of your boom and bust cycle problems. And the way that we approach it is to limit primary spending, which is spending on entitlements, and spending on discretionary programs at the federal level, but not interest, as a percent of potential GDP. And we use potential GDP precisely to eliminate the spending blowouts in the fat years and limits that would make politically unsustainable cuts in a recession to give a much more smooth line uh, to spending growth at the federal level. It seems like the only real difference between a Tabor-type limit and a potential GDP limit is what is in terms of how much of the long-term economic growth will flow back to taxpayers versus how much will be retained at the federal level as a, as a constant percentage. So I would just see what each of the panelists think about that approach to limiting spending. Well, it, it sounds sort of like a mixture of, a, of the Swiss debt break, because the potential GDP is involved with sort of the, the five-year estimates that you use. But I, I, I don't know if any of the panelists have read your legislation and have comments. Uh, but but uh, I have, uh, of course, talked to you about it. I think it, it is very much uh, along the same theme that we've heard today. But do any panelists have comments? 
Well, may I, maybe I'll chip in first. I mean, um, it, it's an awfully difficult process to, to forecast uh, because um, um, this economic cycle goes up and down, and you have to still have some, some estimation of what your long-term GDP growth or your forecast based on assumptions, what your long-term GDP forecast would be, and you try to, as you said, smooth out the kind of expenditure pattern. And in the process, try to build in things that has no flexibility, like, like for example, your entitlement programs and spending that has already been entrained to, to figure out how much you are insured or how much you, you have exceeded uh, in, in terms of revenue or your expenditure and try to smoothen it out along, along the way. Um, you use our economy as an example. We do have one or two occasions whereby our spending exceeded 20%, I think by one or two percent of the G GDP because of a certain unanticipated economic downturn. But, but the judgment at the time is that you should not be really having a high-handed measure trying to curb expenditure more than necessary. On the other hand, you may probably have to spend a bit even more in capital projects or other things to stimulate so anti-cyclical. But of course, with the kind of a... Um, um, a, a projection or a, a, a promise that you will curb it or cap it uh, as you go along uh, uh, in order to bring comfort to the system that you have overspent this year or these three years and then you have to have a kind of way um, 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 to recoup the kind of loss, uh, so to speak, uh, by digging your hand into the piggy bank. So it's a kind of a, a process that uh, is kind of discipline that the people managing public finance will have to have that kind of awareness. Romina? In uh, Romina Bachchan with the Heritage Foundation, in the event that uh, legislators were to appropriate more than is allowed under whatever cap the system provides, are there any enforcement mechanisms and what are they? I guess, da Daniel, you mentioned that there's a a look-back provision, a clawback provision. Uh, do you have any more details on that? Uh, yeah, it, we have this amortization account, we, we, we call it, which uh, records extraordinary uh, receipts and expenditure. And, uh, and then it should be in the following six years, according to, to that, uh, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the shortfall must be offset. So this is actually a clawback some kind of callback uh, mechanism. With Tabor in Colorado, it's um, it's pretty straightforward. It'd be an illegal spending appropriation from the state government based on the constitutional language. Now they can always go to the people and ask for that additional ability, but they would have to do that in order to have that legislation approved to spend the extra money. Now there are some other emergency provisions in the Taxpayer Bill of Rights where emergency spending, for instance, during a declared emergency, let's say the wildfires that they've been dealing with in Colorado for many years, that would be something that would be waived. Uh, the Tabor limits, they have a reserve fund built in, in in Tabor to allow for that kind of spending, but otherwise they would have to go to the people to get the approval. Otherwise the Supreme Court would rule that unconstitutional spending appropriation. Other questions? Kurt? One of the, no, Kurt Couchman, I'm the legislative director for Congressman Dave Bratt in Virginia. Um, one of the themes that was common to each of the three examples that we've heard about today was that they were constitutional. Uh, I mean, statutory uh, devices obviously uh, have a role to play in this uh, as implementing legislation, but uh, it seems like if you don't have a constitutional amendment, then you haven't 
um, done the, the work you need to do to get the buy-in um, that, yes, balancing the budget uh, on whatever basis is the thing that we need to do. Um, and so uh, I'd like your comments on that, as well as um, to what extent are the constitutional provisions in Hong Kong and Colorado and, uh, and Switzerland backed up by implementing legislation, and how detailed is that relative to the constitutional language? Uh, in, in our case, um, the language is very big, just as I just uh, uh, pulled up on, on the slide. And, um, and, and I agree with you that it's not just uh, about the legal framework and the constitutional framework, but really the population who is more or less accustomed to this kind of mode and without major um, 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 disagreement about the way uh, uh, we proceed. Uh, for example, Hong Kong is a small externally oriented economy and cannot afford to be raising debt and try to spend the money from the future, this sort of thing. So that is something that I think uh, the population in Hong Kong is quite used to. And um, um, there are, of course, implementing legislation that backs that up, but it's really about, I would say, more about controlling expenditure, about the legislature cannot propose uh, legislation uh, that will increase spending, that, that sort of thing, uh, rather than a kind of broad um, uh, approach uh, whereby that is prescribed in, in our constitution that is quite um, um, basically codify the practices or the policies that, that, that were in the past that make Hong Kong successful. And there was no big argument about that at the time. So it, it's a combination of the constitutional arrangement and the control framework by legislation and, and of course policy and the kind of uh, 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 basically community, con community consensus about the kind of philosophy for management our, managing our public finance. Daniel, Jonathan, you want to add anything? I, I would agree that the top-down approach is really, really key in setting the framework uh, within uh, uh, which politicians uh, can then they have of course a certain flexibility within that framework, but the framework is well limited. Of course, it helps if this is a is done by a constitutional uh, uh, provision, which is backed up by implementing legislation, of course. Uh, and uh, and as as my, uh, my colleague from Hong Kong uh, mentioned, uh, what is key it's, it's really the support by by the people. Uh, in the case of Switzerland, eighty five percent. That's uh, 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 even by Swiss standards, uh, a huge majority uh, of the people has backed uh, this uh, concept of debt break. And, and, and so the politicians basically, they are bound by people's will. Uh, and, and that helps, of course. But can I ask a follow up on that? And I guess also this would apply to Hong Kong. If somebody put a referendum on the ballot again to repeal the debt break, do you think Swiss voters would vote 85% against it? In other words, do they see the debt break as a success, especially when they look around the rest of Europe, which is suffering such fiscal chaos? Yeah, I think you just gave the response. Obviously, they, I think it would be rather 95% uh, today. Right? <laughs> and what about in Hong Kong? I mean, Hong Kong's ranked number one in economic freedom of the world, uh, and it's been a fast-growing economy for, for decades. Do people in Hong Kong actually see a connection between the increased prosperity and the constraints on government? I think um, if you ask an ordinary man on the streets, um, they will say that government should ex increase expenditure. Um, but if you are asking them whether we should change the basic law article on balanced budget 
budget commensurate with economic growth, I bet the majority of Hong Kong people will say no to the amendment. Uh, because I think um, um, even though they are grumbling about paying high taxes, <laughs> imagine that, and not sufficient government expenditure, when they see examples in places like Europe and other places when government face bankruptcies and economic instability, I think there is a general consensus that this is something that works for us. Okay, I think we have time for uh, one more question. Norm, uh, make it a good one. Uh, I will, actually, it's for Andrew and Dan, my, or Jonathan and Dan. My question is, um, the American situation, very different than Hong Kong and uh, Switzerland. We're a larger uh, country, a larger economy. We are also, whatever you think of as a policy, the de facto world's policeman and military leader. Um, all that, all that, plus our, as you pointed out, burgeoning entitlement um, crisis, plus the fact that a lot of states, even states, even deep red states run by conservative Republican governors, are addicted to that to federal checks from Washington for education and Medicaid, etc. And top it all off, the fact that we we seem to have tried rules-based budgeting several times in the past, once in the 80s with Grant Renfrew Holling, once arguably more recently with the uh, budget deal of 2010. Um, so to what extent do you think the good examples of Switzerland and Hong Kong can ever actually be transferred to America before we hit the giant uh, fiscal uh, iceberg that the Titanic that is the United States government seems to be carousing to? Well, I'll, I'll let Jonathan that first shot at that while I try to figure out a good answer. <laughs> I'm glad we ended with the easy question. At least. So, uh, I mean, the, certainly the experience from the states, and you hit the nail on the head there on the issue of states coming to the federal government asking for more continually is a huge one. If we ever want to regain any bit of state autonomy or the issue of federalism, if we want states to be the laboratories of democracy that the founders viewed them as, we've got to get rid of the federal addiction and federal dollars. And there's no doubt about it. As a, as a wise man once said, if you want to get out of the trap, you've got to let go of the cheese. And the states are unwilling to let go of the cheese and the allure of free federal money. You look at Medicaid expansion that's going on. You look at uh, highway funds. This is a huge problem on behalf of the states. And uh, unfortunately, it's a bipartisan problem, as you allude to. Well, I guess I'll try to give a shot at answering it from the central government level. Um, I actually think the bad fiscal news in Europe has had a bit of a sobering effect. I think that's one of the reasons why we had that five-year spending freeze. I mean, there were also some unusual factors. We had such a high baseline in 2009 because of the so-called stimulus and TARP anyhow. Uh, but I think the, the, the average policymaker, the average staffer in this room probably recognizes there is an aging population, there are demographic challenges, our entitlement programs are poorly run. So really the question is, is whether or not we can ever sort of channel all that generic concern into some productive legislative changes, ideally in a constitutional changes, because we don't want the, the risks of, uh, of having something like Graham Rudman in the 80s and then having it repealed once it began to bind the hands of the politicians. And likewise, today we have a Budget Control Act where we already had Ryan Murray Part 1 that sort of kicked the can down the road, and now there's pressure to bust the spending caps from both the defense spenders and the domestic spenders. Uh, so I don't know that there's any single answer other than 
That's what the Cato Institute is here for, to put on programs like this to try to educate more people on how to uh, save America and make us more like Switzerland and Hong Kong. And with that, please join me in thanking our panel for a very <laughs>